Welcome to Beth Takun and our study of the book of Yehoshua, or Joshua. This week we're in chapter 11. All right, so the first half of the book of Joshua is coming to a close. The defeat of the southern kingdoms has been completed in the previous chapter. And in this chapter, the northern kingdoms are in the Israelites' sights. The battles continue to be made easier by God's intervention. The war is ending, and the settling of the land is about to commence. But before we get into the text, I want to talk to you about something. Uh, If I haven't mentioned it already, I apologize. But if I have, it definitely bears repeating. What we're studying in Joshua isn't just the history of the Israelites. It's the story of where we are right now. What do I mean by that? Well, the Israelites are a picture of yourself. Okay, Canaan is a picture of your soul. The kings of Canaan are the parts of your soul that need to be conquered. And Joshua, of course, is a picture of Yeshua. And he has been tasked by the Father to lead you into those occupied places to bring victory. Okay? All these battles that we've that, that have happened within Canaan represent the war for our souls. The degree to which we follow the orders of our king, Yeshua, is the degree to which we claim our souls for God and his kingdom. Got it? All right. On a related note, I want to read to you something that I found this week from the Art Scroll Tanakh series commentary on Joshua. This is the book that we usually have back here on the shelf, uh, this book. And in my study this week, I found this this passage that I want to share with you. Uh, I think it's an excerpt from another book called uh, Niflaus Metoras Hashem, Marvels of God's Torah by Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Schlez. What he's talking about is what we would call divine providence or God's intervention on behalf of Israel, and it's worth sharing with you, and I'll read it now. Divine providence operates on many levels. Although the loss of 36 men back in chapter 7 was viewed as a national catastrophe, it also set in motion the fulfillment of a blessing. Concerning the inheritance of Eretz Yisrael, the Torah promised the Jews great and good cities which you will not have to build, houses full of good things which you will not have to fill, vineyards and olive trees. This is in Deuteronomy 6, verses 10 and 11. The implications of this blessing are staggering. When the Israelites would march into Eretz Yisrael, they would inherit developed cities, planted fields, and fully furnished houses. The only way this promise could have been fulfilled was the way in which it was fulfilled. All the Canaanite kings united to jointly battle the Israelites in the chapter this week, 11, uh, verse 5. After they were defeated, their cities were defenseless, and Israel could plunder their houses and fields without opposition. Had the inhabitants of the land left on their own volition, they certainly would have transported all their possessions with them. Had Israel made peace with them, they would have retained their cities. Had Israel fought each kingdom in succession, the remaining ones would have given up hope and out of spite burned their cities and fled. With hindsight... We can often perceive the subtle and extraordinary elements of God's providence. 
I's initial success in warding off Israel's attack and mortally wounding some of its soldiers produced a concatenation of events which led to the defeat of the 31 Canaanite kings and to the fulfillment of the Torah's blessing. Since Israel had fled from their first encounter, the inhabitants of Ai never suspected the ambush from the rear, which precipitated their downfall. After Ai was defeated, the Gibeonites sought admission to Israel, and this ultimately resulted in the formation of a confederacy of kings in the south and north. Thus, Israel was able to vanquish the land with few battles and take possession of the cities and houses as they were promised. It's amazing how God's plan unfolds. So the battles you are in, the ways in which you are being attacked from without and within, the things that happen that make you even question, why would God allow this to happen? You must understand something. What you might consider a catastrophe in your life is setting into motion the fulfillment of a blessing, a blessing whose path to accomplishment will only ever be revealed at the end of things, when we look back, not when all we can see is the mess we're in, not when all we can see is the horrible things that could be. No, we will look back one day and see it. Until then, we go through it all. The losses we suffer along the way are not the end, nor are the battles won. Victory will be had, one victory. Until then, we follow the marching orders of our Joshua, Yeshua. Not even Joshua could see the big picture in how all of this would play out, bringing about the fulfillment of the promise. His part was to be obedient to God's leading, directly and indirectly, through Moses. The Israelites also certainly didn't see how this was all working together for good. Their part was to be obedient to Joshua's leading. Now, I couldn't possibly tell you how you will get out of the rut you're in, how you will win this unique battle. But I can tell you with certainty that obedience to God through his instruction in the written word, the Torah, and the living word, Yeshua, will lead to victory. Maybe not a victory today or this week or even this year, but an eventual victory that will make all that led to it make sense. I can promise that because this, I can promise that because this is what we have been promised. 1 John 5, 1 through 5 says, Everyone who believes that Yeshua is the King is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves the one born of Him. We know that we love God's children by this. When we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. And the victory that has overcome the world is this, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? If not the one who believes that Yeshua is Ben Elohim, the Son of God. Okay. So let's open our Bibles now and dive into the text. We're in Joshua chapter 11. And again, this week I'll be reading from the Tree of Life version. Now when Yavin, king of Hazor, heard about it, 
he sent word to Jebob, king of Madon, to the king of Shimron, to the king of Achshaf, and to the kings in the north, in the hill country, in the Arabah, south of Chinarot, in the lowland, and in the regions of Dor to the west, the Canaanites in the east and west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites at the foot of Hermon in the land of Mizpah. So they came out, they and all their armies with them, a multitude with as many people as the sand on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. All these kings joined forces, came and camped together at the waters of Merom to fight with Israel. But Adonai said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give all of them slain before Israel. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war with him stacked them or attacked them suddenly at the waters of Merom and fell upon them. Then Adonai gave them into the hand of Israel. So they defeated them and chased them as far as Great Sidon and Mizrephoth Maim, and up to the valley of Mizpah eastward. They struck them down until they left them no survivors. Joshua did to them as Adonai had instructed him. He hamstrung their horses and burnt their chariots with fire. At that time, Joshua turned back and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword because Hazor had formerly been the head of all those kingdoms. They struck down every single soul in it with the edge of the sword, putting them to the ban. There was none left that breathed after he burned Hazor with fire. Thus, Joshua captured all the cities of those kings and all their kings, and he struck them with the edge of the sword, putting them to the ban, just as Moses, the servant of Adonai, had commanded. But as for the cities that stood on their mounds, Israel did not burn any of them except Hazor alone, which Joshua did burn. All the spoil of these cities and the cattle, B'nai Israel took as their booty, but they struck down every person with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, not sparing anyone who breathed. Just as Adonai had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua. And so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that Adonai had, meant, had commanded Moses. So Joshua captured all this land, the hill country, the Negev, all the land of Goshen, the lowland, the Arabah, the hill country of Israel and its lowland, from the Mount, uh, from the Mount Halak that ascends to Seir, all the way to Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon at the foot of Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings, struck them down and put them to death. For a long time, Joshua made war with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with B'nai Israel, except the Hivites who inhabited Gibeon. All the rest they took in battle, for it was of Adonai to harden their hearts to encounter Israel in battle, that they might be put to the ban, that they might receive no mercy in order to destroy them as Adonai had commanded Moses. At that time, Joshua went and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, Debir, Anab, and from the entire hill country of Judah, and from the entire hill country of Israel. Joshua put a ban on them with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of B'nai Israel, except some were left in Gaza, Gat and Ashdod. So Joshua captured the whole country according to all that Adonai had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Then the land had rest from war. Okay, going back to 
the top of the chapter in verse 1. Uh, now verses 1 through 5, we see our Yavin building his coalition to be a stronger force against Israel. He had likely heard, uh, it says here, now the king, now when king, uh, Yavin king of Hazor heard about it or had heard, uh, we, we presume what he had heard was how the southern kingdoms were conquered in their disunity, thus motivating him to unify forces in the north so as to give them a little bit more uh, power um, and, and ensure their success. Now, when Yavin, king of Hazor, heard about it, he sent word to Jabob, um, Jobab. Jobab? David? You think that sounds good? Okay. Jobab, king of Madon, uh, to the king of Shimron, to the king of Achshaf, and to the kings in the north in the hill country in the Arabah, south of Hinnerot, in the lowland and in the regions of Dor to the west. Um, okay, moving on down to verses 6 through 15. Um, these are describing Joshua's preemptive attack. Uh, so here we, we have in verse 6, But Adonai said to Joseph, Do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give you all of them slain before Israel. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Strange and oddly specific request. So addressing the horses and chariots is important here. This is the first time we see Israel facing in battle an army with horses and chariots. The last time horses and chariots were used by an aggressor was when the Egyptians chased after them, right? The sight of this kind of army could have a negative psychological impact on the Israelites, despite the fact that these Israelites did not exactly witness the Egyptians' pursuit. They certainly heard about it, though. So to deal with this, God's instruction here communicates that Israel should not only not fear this technology, we'll call it a technology, that comes against them. Um, if we recall back in Deuteronomy 20, verse 1, when you see the horses and chariots, do not fear. But they should not presume it will be their salvation if they use it. Part of our liturgy we take from Psalm 33, and it states, no king is saved by his great army. No warrior is delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor can its great strength save. You see, this is not a physical battle where material weapons provide strength. This is spiritual, and Adonai Elohim is our strength. Got it? Now, we can also say here that the horses and chariots are representative of the culture of Egypt, not just its military uh, strength. Egypt was, was what it was because of its great power, power derived from its military technology, i.e. horses and chariots. So if we discard the root of a culture that opposes God, we free ourselves from enslavement to it. This was an important step in Israel's progress toward maturity and why I think it's addressed here specifically. Uh, moving on. Verse 7. So those and all the people of war with him attacked them suddenly at the waters of Merom and fell upon them. Their attack was successful uh, primarily because God alone was the source of intel. They didn't have a spy. They didn't have anyone else telling them what was going on except for God himself. So this was, the, the suddenness of this was not only sudden to the Canaanites, it was sudden to the Israelites as well. 
Verse, verse 8. Then Adonai gave them into the hand of Israel, so they defeated them and chased them as far as Great Zidon and Mizraphot Mayim, and up to the valley of Mizpah eastward. They struck them down until they left no survivors. Uh, in verse 9 again, we see how they did. They hamstrung the horses and burnt the chariots with fire, so they were obedient. Uh, moving down, let's go down to verse 13, uh, 12 and 13. Thus Joshua captured all the cities of those kings and all their kings, and he struck them with the edge of the sword, putting them to the band, just as Moses the servant of Adonai had commanded. Just, uh, but, as far, but as for the cities that stood on their mounds, Israelite, Israel did not burn any of them except Hazor alone, which Joshua did burn. So the destruction of Hazor and other cities was, was commanded by Moses, which is why he's mentioned here. And Moses, of course, was following God's instruction and in giving the order. So obedience, obedience, obedience. God commanded to Moses. Moses then commanded, and, and Joshua is following his master. Verse 14, all the spoil of these cities and the cattle, B'nai Yisrael took as their booty, but they struck down every person with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, not sparing anyone who breathed. Verse 15, just as Adonai had commanded Moses his servant, there we see it again, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. So Adonai, Moses, Joshua, obedience, obedience, obedience. He left nothing undone of all that Adonai had commanded Moses. Joshua was a good student. He was a good follower of his master. Um, and, and therefore, he followed the Torah well. Uh, verses 16 through the end of the chapter are all about a summary of Joshua's triumphs. So we start here in 16. So Joshua captured all this land, the hill country, the Negev, all the land of Goshen, the lowland, the Arabah, the hill country of Israel, and its lowland. Now, in this verse, when it says Goshen, it's believed to be parts of Canaan that were owned by, that may have been owned by the governor of Goshen, which is, which is a part of it, Egypt. Uh, Israel didn't go back into Egypt and take back some of that land. No, parts of the land claimed by Egypt were reclaimed for Israel. So, I like to think of this as uh, the saying, you know, you can take the Israelites out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of the Israelites, as we've seen in the, in the, in the wilderness. There was some longing to go back, because that's what they knew. Here, I think, is an example, uh, just a brief touch on the fact that Goshen had to be defeated as well, which was the last tie to Egypt. Parts of, the, of Canaan that were claimed by Egypt, they had to be defeated uh, and claimed as well. Um, moving on, verse 17. When, uh, from the Mount Halak that ascends to Seir all the way to Belgad in the valley of Lebanon at the foot of Mount Hermon, he captured all their kings, struck them down, and put them to death. For a long time, verse 18, for a long time, Joshua made war with all those kings. Unlike the defeat of the five-city alliance in chapter 10, this war took years to complete. Um, and I believe here, if, if I'm correct, and please tell me if I'm wrong, and David, you may know this too. This verse uh, in the Hebrew uh, is, is seven words long. In seven words, 
the duration of Joshua's victory over the northern kingdoms is described. I think this is this could be an indication of the holiness of this. Now I say that I think it's seven only because three of these words in the Hebrew are hyphenated, and I'm not sure if that's if if this should be counted as seven words or or nine words. If it's seven words, then then I think that that could be an indication of the the holiness of this. So. Those of you who know, leave a comment and let me know. Um, verse, verses 19 through 20, these are uh, about the Canaanites losing their opportunity to repent and survive. So let's, let's read these two. Verse 19, there was not a city that made peace with B'nai Israel except the Hivites who inhabited Gibeon. All the rest they took in battle. For it was of Adonai to harden their hearts to encounter Israel in battle, that they might be put to the ban that they might receive no mercy in order to destroy them as Adonai had commanded Moses. So you can look at it this way. The Gibeonites were redeemed. The rest of the kingdoms had to be eliminated for Israel to safely inhabit and flourish in the land. So in other words, death has to precede life. The work of the soul is to go into all of these dark places led by Yeshua and either redeem or expel what we find there. Even with Yeshua's help, the the work of redemption will be difficult. It may take years, but it's possible. And there will be pain in the expelling of what needs to go. These are unavoidable options, but they are absolutely necessary. Verse 21. At that time, Joshua went and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron to Beer, Anav, and from the entire hill country of Judah, and from the entire hill country of Israel. Joshua put a ban on them with their cities. Uh, and if you'll recall, putting a ban meaning dedicating them for destruction. That's the same, the same words there in the Hebrew. Um, verse 22. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of B'nai Israel, except some were left in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. And finally, verse 23, So Joshua captured the whole country according to all that Adonai had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Then the land had rest from war. So, our souls will find rest after the battles cease. In the meantime, we remind ourselves of that fact when we enter into each Shabbat. We glimpse victory, and it reminds us that we must keep going. We must keep spreading out, conquering every square inch of our souls for his glory, for his kingdom. Yeshua is our king, and he will not lead us anywhere we are not meant to conquer. So let us have faith that he is the son of of God and trust that his leading us through the wilderness and into the battles in the land will culminate in the one final victory. Well, we'll end it there for this week. I hope this has been as much of a blessing for you as it has for me. Uh, And so bless you all, and may he make us into the people he wants us to be. Shalom.